the human condition is to really pay close attention to the past and the future. And educators in particular are trained to be reflective on their practice and to plan ahead for the future. I, I get questions all the time from our members, you know, asking basically, you know, why does this process take so long? We're building a multi-story building in downtown Detroit. You would think connectivity would be great, right? You're in the middle of a, of a major city. You, you get three, four stories in the ground, not so much. As you know, Southwest Airlines flight attendants voted down their recent TA, and then they were informed that there was a security issue in regards to the vote. Sound familiar, Skywest flight attendants? Within the workforce, it's about motivating people. The idea that you're part of this historical thing, this new model uh, of capitalism. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, battling educator stress, kicking off 2024, innovation and contact, flight attendants raise the bar, and Extrapolation, speculation, fabulation. Stephen Shaviro on the work of science fiction. This week's featured shows are School Me, a podcast fueled by educators from the National Education Association, the bipartisan Buzz, the official podcast of the Colorado State Association of Letter Carriers, the Construction User 2.0, the podcast from the Association of Union Constructors. It's Time Live, the official podcast of SkyWest Flight Attendants, and the Workers' Speculative Society, a podcast for Rival, the Reimagining Value Action Lab, a research and creativity workshop for the radical imagination active around the world and locally in Thunder Bay, Canada. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to School Me, the National Education Association's podcast dedicated to helping educators thrive at every stage of their careers. I'm your host, Natika Samuels. It's no secret that educators are more stressed than ever these days. Whether you call it stress, burnout, or just plain exhaustion, it's rapidly changing the education landscape as educators retire early or quit their jobs due to the pressures they've endured. But there are ways to make things better, from federal funding to local actions to individual practices. So today we're joined by Todd Scholl from the Center for Educator Wellness and Learning to discuss the toll stress can take on educators, strategies for managing it, taking action for the greater good, and maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Thank you so much for joining us today, Todd. My pleasure. So this is going to sound like a very silly question, but I think we have to start here. Why are educators so stressed these days? I think there's a whole host of reasons. If I were to really dig into what is the underlying cause and, you know, I think about like cancer, like what causes cancer? Well, there can be genetic mutations, but a lot of times it's environmental. It's, you know, people are smoking or not eating what they're supposed to be doing or drinking too much, things like that, or other environmental factors. Some of that they can't do anything about. When I think about, you know, what is at the root of educator stress, I go to the toxic system that was built around accountability. So this goes back to the 80s after a nation at risk was 
released to the public and created this sort of outcry that our public schools were failing and that we were falling behind our international peers. This accountability movement was created around that and testing sort of became the god of how we were going to measure school success. And that has only gotten worse. I think we've seen a devolution of that system where it's really become this test and punish culture. And it is the tail that wags the dog at this point that there are, you know, the school leaders are very much myopically focused on their test scores and understandably so because that's how they're being told they're gonna be measured in terms of their success. This filters down to the classroom teacher and then it also filters down to our students because there's all of this pressure that's now placed on this particular metric, this standardized test, so much pressure that uh, the system has become increasingly dehumanized and we are sacrificing human happiness and wellness at the altar of the testing God. I know a lot of educators right now feel like they're just trying to persevere through very, very difficult environments. And it's much more stressful now because we've got an increased issues in terms of school safety now, worrying about school shootings and school violence. And then also this sort of toxic culture that's built up around accusing educators of indoctrinating students and then censoring the materials they're using and feeling like they're under fire, that they're going to be in trouble for using certain types of books or certain types of materials. There's all of this very negative rhetoric around educators that they didn't have to deal with 10, 15 years ago. So teaching is just hard in general. It's a very demanding profession. But now you've got a culture building up around it that doesn't even respect the people who are doing that hard work. What are some techniques that you would recommend people start off with? Let's just start off with promoting a healthy work-life balance. The first thing that I would recommend is to sit down and make a list of everything that you do, everything that requires your time and attention, and then start to look at what are some of the things that I can start to let go of. If I'm feeling overwhelmed, if I'm feeling like I'm constantly stressed out, what are some things that I can let go of? And what are some things that are just not negotiable I can't let go of? So start there, start with carving out the parts and letting go of the parts of your life that are adding to your plate that aren't really necessary and not feeling guilty at all or being gaslighted into feeling guilty or saying no to certain things. And that's what we've got to do is reclaim some of our time. When it comes to mindfulness, the reason why I think mindfulness is such a critical component to your overall wellness is because the human condition is you know, our brains evolved to really pay close attention to the past and the future. And educators in particular are trained to be reflective on their practice and to plan ahead for the future. The problem with being in that kind of mind state where you're time traveling all the time, where you're perseverating on your past and future, is that we have a tendency to stick to thoughts that are stressful. We think about the things that went wrong with our day and we perseverate on that. And we think about all the things that could go wrong tomorrow and we perseverate on that. And a certain amount of that is probably useful, but I think a lot of us go beyond what is useful and really kind of torment ourselves. But to be able to let go of that, you know, we can say we want to let go of that perseverating and sort of ruminating that we do, but it actually requires training because we're hardwired to do that. We're hardwired to time travel in our minds. So we have to intentionally sit down and do a training to rewire our brains to be able to pay attention, to sort of rein that back in and pay attention to the present moment to be, which is what mindfulness is, is paying attention to what's happening now. 
and letting go of judgment about it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for talking to me today. I think I found this very therapeutic and I hope that anybody, whether you're an educator or a podcast host, you can find something to work from here. Thank you so much. I really am honored and appreciate you inviting me to be a guest. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of School Me. And take a minute to rate the show and leave a review. It really helps us out and it makes it easier for more educators to find us. For more tips to help you bring the best to your students, text POD, that's P-O-D, to 48744. Well, everybody, welcome to the bipartisan buzz of this latest edition. And um, we kicked off last year with... John Beaumont and Matt Tanner are LPOs for the NALC and uh, had a great time with them and speaking about uh, legislative issues, what's going on across the country. But um, I told you I were going to have a special guest and I wanted to kick off 2024 with, you know, they say go big or go home. So I thought, hey, you know what? I go home every day. So uh, let's just go big. So uh, I would like to welcome our national president, Brian Renfro to our podcast. So Brian, I appreciate you taking the time and I know you're a busy guy, but I appreciate you being here to, to talk to us. Absolutely, Rick. I appreciate the uh, invitation and looking forward to talking with you and uh, our good folks out there in the state of Colorado. Well, thank you. And I know, I know we're going to be um, talking about a lot of stuff and I know you're going to give us some updates on contract and everything else. So let me just start with what I, I know is, is that, top of mind for those listening. It certainly is for me. Um, and that's collective bargaining. This is a, a process that's been ongoing for uh, a number of months now. Um, so just a, a couple of things. Let me just update where we are in the process and, and then kind of talk about what we can expect here going forward in the next um, in the next few weeks. So we are uh, at the point of moving to the final step and the final step in our collective bargaining is interest arbitration. And um, just a, a little bit on that, you know, this last year, 2023 was a year where we saw a lot of unions, mostly our brothers and sisters in the private sector have a lot of success. I mean, a couple that come to mind are, are pretty large national bargaining unit contracts. Um, one, of course, of interest to us being the, the Teamsters agreement with UPS that, that uh, they achieved a few months ago. And then a little bit more recently, um, the UAW um, achieved agreements with uh, their major employers, the, the major automakers. And, you know, while we do have in a lot of ways some uh, comparability with our brothers and sisters in the private sector, for example, you know, UPS is a pretty obvious one in that uh, they do work that uh, is most similar to ours compared to, you know, maybe any of the other industries out there we can think of. Um, and there's certainly elements of their agreement that uh, um, have had a, a positive impact on our negotiations. And then we also look at UAW, um, you know, while their work is different in a lot of ways, uh, they have experienced over the last, well, I guess at this point it's, 13, 14 years or so, um, in some ways they've experienced a, a lot of similar impacts on collective bargaining um, that we have. If, if you remember when we negotiated our 2011 agreement and eventually um, you know, got that agreement through the interest arbitration process with uh, arbitrator Doss chairing that panel, 
the auto industry um, was impacted in a lot of ways, very similarly to the Postal Service when you looked at what happened with the recession in, in 2008 and in 2009. So, you know, some of the impacts um, on their collective bargaining as far as the structure of the workforce and that type of stuff, um, there are definitely some, some parallels to what we've experienced. So, you know, in some ways, those agreements have had a positive impact on uh, on our collective bargaining and certainly just what we see in this country with wages in general um, have definitely been a, a positive. And in a lot of ways, um, those positive influences are what's um, prolonged our efforts a little bit. You know, I, I completely understand and, as you might imagine, get questions all the time from our members, you know, asking basically, you know, why does this process take so long? And it's something I completely understand. I'll be honest with you. I'm not patient when it comes to this process and um, or much of any other process, to be honest. Um, but ultimately, you know, our responsibility is to negotiate and utilize our process to achieve the best agreement that we can achieve for our members, you know, given all the circumstances that surround us. We feel like we have an opportunity here to make some significant gains. Um, we have a, a better landscape, so to speak, in which to bargain than certainly the three previous rounds of bargaining that I've been directly involved in um, here at headquarters. Again, thank you, Brian, for being on with us. And uh, let's let's continue this. And we're going to push out a lot more episodes in 2024, and we're going to get a schedule going and get more people in. So um, I appreciate you listening. Until next time, have a good day. Welcome to the Construction User 2.0 from the Association of Union Constructors. In this podcast, we explore the latest labor trends, industry insights, and important issues in the world of construction. Join us for conversations with industry leaders, subject matter experts, and innovative visionaries as we discuss how we are building the world of tomorrow. Today is going to be a special one. We have two guests instead of our standard one, but it's going to prove to be a very interesting conversation about innovation and construction technology. Our first is Brienne Stewart, a group project manager at Milwaukee Tool with a decade of experience in improving technologies. She remains on the cutting edge of construction and job safe technology. Our other is Matt Hedke. He's the director of VDC Solutions at Barton Mallow. And after working in construction management for over 20 years, Matt knows the importance of innovation and how to make sure it takes hold on your teams. So obviously a lot is being done in the construction to push in the industry forward. This, this group was involved in, you know, in one such project centered on job site connectivity. Can you tell me more about that project and that, the innovation? So when we met as a committee, we started talking about what some of the common pain points we had with technology. And what was really interesting is no matter the technology different parties were trying to enable, 
it all came down to connectivity on the job site. You can't really make a, a software app or a connected device work well if you don't have some kind of connectivity to the cloud. Uh, so that's where we um, arrived upon connectivity as, as our focus area because it was something that was a pain point felt universally across all of the, the talk users. And there was a benefit to going out after solutions in the space as a group so we can share best learnings, we can work more proactively with the big providers in the field, and then ultimately even we're able to have a, a pilot with some connectivity partners and one of the several of the contractors that are part of the, the tech committee on a connectivity solution. So um, I'll give you a brief example through the lens of kind of Barton Mallow. Um, you know, we're building a multi-story building in downtown Detroit. You would think connectivity would be great, right? You're in the middle of a of a major city. Yes, I would. You, you get three, four stories in the ground, not so much, Fair right? Enough. So again, you know, until you're in that situation, you don't realize the problem. Con, you know, conversely, if you go out to the middle, to your, to your point, um, we do a lot of solar farms, wind farms, things like that, that are more in a, a rural environment. And you would think that, hey, I should have cell service out there. But sometimes, you know, we we're, we use Verizon at Barton Mallow. And sometimes you get in the middle of, you know, rural America and Verizon isn't a great provider in that particular area or AT&T may be a better provider, right? So you're constantly being, you know, challenged with, you know, different, just different problems you're trying to solve, right? And I think it's through those experiences and through the, the conversations where you start to understand, you know, not only things like cell service, but how do you kind of push Wi-Fi across the project? And, you know, is if you're pushing Wi-Fi from a centralized place on a project site, you know, how far is it reaching? Are you thinking about that site that's, you know, a couple hundred acres? Are you getting it way out to them that are maybe on the far end of the project, right? Or, you know, can they get what they need to via cell service? So yeah, one just, thing that was interesting working through kind of everybody's different experiences is how many very creative workarounds people were finding to make up for a lack of connectivity as we were throwing more and more technology and the needs for real-time communication at the job site. So to Matt's point of a um, kind of highly dense urban environment, there was a contractor that we met with who would string together MiFi's and put them down the elevator shaft to have Wi-Fi on each floor. I really love creative people. I, I really do love creative people because that is the best bad idea ever. I mean, it probably worked okay, but it's certainly not how that product was intended. And that's where I think we we saw it's a really good solution for us to try to solve when you have so many workarounds. Um, in rural areas, they were depending on people working overtime or working at night in their hotel room, going back offline during the day and going back at the end of day and uploading RFIs, change requests for the, uh, the print. So there was a lot of problems with some of the solutions we were able to put out there were universal. So even just better planning um, and how to work together better with the owners, the general contractor and the, the subcontractors to address this early on. So you don't have to get to the point where everybody is trying to do their own workarounds. You've just listened to the Construction User 2.0 podcast from the Association of Union Constructors. Don't forget to subscribe to get all future episodes of what is going on and what is current in the union construction and maintenance industry. Go to my
Welcome to the It's Time Live podcast. Surely you've heard flight attendants unions from Alaska, American, Southwest, and United are deep in tough negotiations with management at their airlines. They're standing firm against unchecked corporate greed to secure what their members rightfully deserve. Each negotiation and resulting agreement sets a precedent that impacts flight attendants industry-wide, including those at non-union airlines. The importance of these talks cannot be overstated. I'm Galen David with the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA. I'm here with SkyWest flight attendant Jackie Crossley, as well as Beth Jackson, an American Airlines flight attendant, and Candace McKaylee, who flies for Southwest. Over to you, Jackie. Thanks, Kaylin. We really have a good one for you today. As you know, Southwest Airlines flight attendants voted down their recent TA, and then they were informed that there was a security issue in regards to the vote. Sound familiar, SkyWest flight attendants? Here to talk to us about it is Candace, a former SkyWest flight attendant, and now she's at Southwest Airlines. Candace, first, I want to talk to you about the why it was voted down. You've shared with me that it was an act of solidarity on behalf of the working flight attendants at Southwest to tell both the negotiating committee as well as management, that what was offered was just not good enough. So could you explain that to us? Yeah. Hi. Um, I think all of our work groups um, are unified at every airline uh, that flight attendants across the aviation industry are incredibly underpaid. We've gone incredibly underappreciated for the past five, six years, everything that we've gone through with the changes in the industry, with COVID, um, with inflation with all of that and many of us at southwest were fully aware that if the contract that was offered to us the ta that was offered to us was ratified it would set a precedent for continuing negotiations with other airlines of course i can't speak for everyone but for me i didn't want a subpar contract to set a tone for other fa work groups that we were willing to take less than what we deserve. And I think, Candace, did, did you tell me that an American airline flight attendant approached you in the van or something in tears thanking you? Uh, it happened to me personally twice with an American flight attendant, once with a United. Someone came up to me, one person was in tears, but three different people have come up to me personally and uh, wanted to talk about it and was grateful that we voted it down. Get more information about what our union will look like at ooitstime.com. Hello, and welcome to the Workers' Speculative Society, a podcast about the politics of speculative fiction, workers' rights, and the world after Amazon. My name is Max Haven. And I'm Dr. Sarah Olutola. On each episode of this podcast, we speak with someone whose expertise or experience helps us understand the world that Amazon is building and what can be done by workers, writers, and concerned people to fight for a different future. Today, uh, we're joined by a guest speaker, Mark McGurl, whom I will introduce you to in a moment. And we're gonna be talking about Mark's uh, book from a couple of years ago, Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks for having me. It's a wonderful to have you here. I wanna read the <clears throat> passage here. So you say, as the author, or perhaps he would prefer to call himself the inventor of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, 
uh, has create created something in Amazon akin to a work of epic science fiction sprung to life. The sprawling logistical networks, uh, state-of-the-art warehouses, super-powered information technologies and interfaces, all of it to which we might add his personal investment in space travel through his privately held company, Blue Origin, an investment said to be running into the rate of about a billion dollars a year that Bezos is investing in, the, in the, uh, his space company. For one, for one commentator, Amazon's core competence is really storytelling, not the other stuff. And you write, through storytelling, outlining a huge vision, Amazon has reshaped the relation between the company and the shareholder. Oh, sorry, you're quoting someone there. Yeah. Has it done the same for the relation between the writer and the reader? I was just really fascinated by thinking about a company as a storyteller, creating its own story of itself uh, as a way of figuring out how it works and spreading itself to the world. And motivating uh, and motivating its workforce. Yeah. With all of those slogans, you know, yeah. have fun, work hard, make history all over the yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, about how important storytelling is to the company's uh, sense of self and, and the way it speaks to its workers and consumers. Sure. I mean, I only found this image after the book was done. Um, but in one of the lobbies of the main of uh, in Seattle, in the in in the main buildings, just as you get on the elevator, the entire wall is a quote from a Bezos uh, speech at, at Princeton's graduation, and it says, "Build yourself a great story." This is in the lobby of Amazon as you as you uh, as you walk in and get on the elevator to go up to your cubicle. I mean, that's just, a, it's just a, it, on one way, it's sort of implausible because uh, that's not literally what's going on, but certainly Bezos, you know, uh, he's, he's, uh, 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 he, in some ways he's the protagonist of this story that I'm telling and that he sort of uh, is, is on a certain model of the capitalist, which has a long history. Um, the, in heavy scare quotes, heroic capitalist who's going to do impossible things um, and show us the way to the future. And I just think that he, you know, from an early age imbibed that idea that 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 capitalist endeavor is tightly intertwined with a certain kind of storytelling. And it became practically important um, in the history of Amazon and that, as many people know, for the first 20 plus years of its existence as a company, it showed essentially showed no profit. And if you're going to be a non and, you know, it could have if it had wanted to, but what it was doing was investing in market share and basically absorbing the, you know, the, the equity, the value of lots of competitors along the way, because being run at a loss for over two decades. In order to get away with that, you better be telling a very good story to sh shareholders. And that was the that that's what that uh, uh, commentator that I'm quoting in that section uh, is is pointing out that it that the, in in some ways the biggest miracle of the early years of Amazon is that Bezos and the other upper management people at Amazon managed to convince investors to have a very long time horizon. While they could, while they could be investing in the business and getting to scale, and of course, market size equals market power, uh, and this is what enables them to be the uh, the incredibly aggressive <laughs> entity that they are today. The so the storytelling element is about corporate ideology, and then as far as the work, in, in, and then within the workforce, it's about motivating people. The idea that you're part of this 
historical thing, this new model uh, of capitalism in theory. I think that there's plenty of evidence that it doesn't fully work for everyone in the workforce, <laughs> but in theory, it's motivating. It's get, 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 getting people to want to be part of this amazing thing. Uh, and thus that you get sort of uh, Bezos, this is, you know, he's retired now, but in, especially in the early years, uh, famously a spokesman for the company. Uh, he would write shareholder letters, which themselves are remarkably persuasive and trying to get people to believe in the dream, you know? So that's where storytelling comes in. And uh, yeah, so that, 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 that that's what I would say about that. You've been listening to the Workers' Speculative Society, a podcast about the future that Amazon is building and the workers and writers who are fighting back. To learn more about the podcast or the broader project of which it's a part, please visit workersspeculativesociety.org. That's workersspeculativesociety.org, all one word. going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week or so on more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on X, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock, urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Happy New Year, everybody.